What is lucid dreaming? I've often had that question, even though I've paid attention to dreams for a long time, both as a personal practice, but also as a clinician. So I've done a lot of reading on dreams, and this today's interview really was a, a kind of serendipitous connection. I'm, I'm happy to either introduce to you or further your awareness of Dr. Athena Laz. This is her book. You can check it out. It is The Alchemy of Your Dreams, A Modern Guide to the Ancient Art of Lucid Dreaming and Interpretation. And it, uh, I, I had, I, I would say my experience of lucid dreaming is, is one where it was maybe too much effort, it was too confusing, or it, it seemed like um, what many critics suggest, another form of ego control, trying to kind of dominate a territory where we're, we are met with our kind of inner figures, as opposed to controlling and, um, and influencing. But the following conversation with Dr. Laz was enlightening. And one thing she'd like to note is that um, just like a meditation, lucid dreaming is a practice. It, it can be very useful. And I have now ordered a number of books to connect with some other folks as well to extend my knowledge in this practice. And, uh, and I'm excited to bring this to you. If you've never known anything about dreaming or lucid dreaming, this episode is for you. If you have known plenty, then this episode is for you. We spend a lot of time exploring lucid dreaming, consciousness, and the psyche. So thank you, Dr. Laz, Athena. It was really nice to get to know you, and it was certainly nice to read your book. I recommend the book, and, uh, and check it out if you have any interest in, uh, in dreaming, lucid dreaming, or creating um, what could be considered spiritual practices to help deepen your understanding of, uh, of reality and yourself in it. So thanks for being here. This is The Sacred Speaks, and I'm your host, John Price. If you are new to The Sacred Speaks, welcome. You can find both audio and video components. If you're on the video on YouTube, you can jump on over to any of the podcast affiliates and like and subscribe to those pages. And if you're listening to this on audio, there is now a YouTube video option. Check it out on YouTube. Just search for The Sacred Speaks or click below on any of the links and uh, that should direct you to where you need to go. The project of The Sacred Speaks is growing and evolving and starting in November think that's the date. We will release a new YouTube series and a new website and a whole lot of other additions. The project's growing and expanding, and thank you. Your participation, your involvement, your presence is certainly creating the container for this to grow and expand and explore deeper ideas and conversations. Uh, ah, the Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Check us out at the Center for HAS.com, T H E C E N T E R F O R H A S.com. This is a boutique integrative practice that my wife, Leela Scott Price, and I started years ago. And it's, uh, it's kind of where we, uh, it's the clinical practice. It's our clinical practice. And the practice is growing and expanding. And if you're ever down in Houston or uh, wherever you're not, check out the site. Check us out. Uh, the music for the podcast, really the whole project, is brought to you by two fellas, uh, Nolan and Toby from Modern Nations. And thanks, guys, for continuing to uh, not only create the wonderful music that you do, but also contributing to this project. I'm, I'm grateful. As always, be sure to like and share what you do of the podcast and the whole project. And your participation is much appreciated. For now, we'll leave it there, and I will bring you Dr. Athena Laz. Athena, thank you for your participation, and thanks for writing this great book. 
really enjoyed it. So for now, we'll leave it there. Well, Athena, I, as we've been uh, kind of getting to know each other and chatting a bit, of course, I'm, I'm excited about uh, learning more about you and learning who you are and what you do. When you and I connected, I, 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 this is just kind of one of those uh, serendipitous events just to, to be, I guess this is the joy of doing what I do. You reaching out to me has put me into a place of looking at dreams and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And now I've read your book. Here it is. Of course, we're going to talk about it. And um, we're gonna, I, I will have included a lot of your bio and information about you in the intro piece. Uh, but I'm just really eager to, uh, to crack this open and figure out what makes you tick. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Good. Good. I am too. So I'm going to be looking down every now and then. I've got notes that I take. And uh, I had somebody at one point tell me that it looks like I'm checking text messages, and I can assure you that that's not what I'm doing. Are <laughs> getting bored? No, I'm yeah. no, it's not. If I if I had a camera, I could like tell you what I'm what I'm doing here. Um, well, so I, I I had this weird experience reading your book, and what uh, similarly to a previous conversation I just had with on, on the podcast, um, you, you really I, I like the way you provide a container for the reader to do some introspective work because this is not one of those things that we can passively watch and sit back and let it happen. You know, you, you actually have to engage this material. And so I was thinking about how to, how to start um, our conversation. And I, I almost want to go in reverse. You know, I, I want to start with um, obviously what a, what a kind of mystical event or what mystical events have happened to you in your life to create this relationship that you have to your dreams. And then maybe we get a little more practical and go into the book. But what initiated you into being someone who is knowledgeable about dreams, and not only just dreams, but engaging in a lucid way the the dream material? When I was very young, I had very, very strange dream experiences and experiences that I would call incredibly intuitive in my waking life and so I would have dreams about people that I would later meet um, in, in my waking life people I didn't know so I had a lot of sort of precognitive dreams when I was younger and very strange um, imagery like as I was go, falling asleep I would see things in the room later as an adult I came to learn what that was that's the in-between state between sleeping and dreaming but as a child I didn't, you know really didn't understand what was going on and a lot of the time it was incredibly overwhelming so from that perspective from childhood dreams always played quite an important part for me an important role but it was Difficult. I'd say it was quite difficult, um, especially the hypnagogic imagery that I saw. Um, and then having these crazy dreams where things would maybe come true, or I would get insight from my dreams um, that would help me. So I've always just very much been connected to dreams in that way. Um, so from, from that kind of perspective, I'd say that's kind of what started art for me, um, or how dreams started out for me, dream work, I would say. Um, and then later, I would have spontaneous lucid dreams. 
and I didn't think anything of it and completely disconnected from that side of dreaming in my 20s when I was quite lost. And when I was about 26, I had an experience of a lucid dream where I just realized I really needed to kind of buckle up and pay attention to what was happening to me and to, to really just stop being afraid of speaking about what was happening. So, from you know, like being able to explore what I think consciousness is, what mysticism is, um, and then also doing that in a framework that felt grounded for me. What happened at 26? What, what went on there? I had a lucid dream where a, I met a guide and they told me um, that I needed to do this work. And I, I didn't, I mean, I don't think I even wrote about that in the book, but I decided to pay attention to it. And at the time, I think I was going into my honors in psychology. Um, so I, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't focused on dreams specifically. I was focused on becoming um, qualified. And, and so that kind of experience that I had that really woke me back up so there, we'll we'll return to the mystical piece, sure. but for now, um, you you did training. I mean, you became a counseling psychologist. Yeah, yeah. And and were you, were you in South Africa at that time? Right. So I I became licensed in South Africa whilst I still lived there, and my training was psychoanalytic in nature. We didn't really try. We didn't do a lot of dream work I must say mm. in my training and um, it's more focused on trauma models and 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 was psychoanalytic um so that's kind of the background for my training and that when did I mean, you worked in that space for a long time and then it wasn't serving yeah. you or what happened so I think what happened is kind of twofold the first thing is that not that it wasn't serving me I wanted to train as a psychologist I wanted to work with people I wanted to have a um an ethical background to write from which I felt was important and I wanted to gain experience so at the time I worked in you know, a lot of clinics I saw a lot of trauma patients mainly um and I it's not that I was disillusioned with it I just never I didn't feel that the community that I was in, at least in that realm, the psychological community, had space to discuss um, consciousness, mysticism, Jungian thought. Jungian thought was, isn't really um, accessible, easily accessible, or at least it wasn't in South Africa at the time when I was training, unless you go on to do... Um, there's one center that is actually quite prolific now, but at the time I didn't feel like those things were accessible to me. And so within myself, I think I had a schism of mm. the psychological thinking and in these mm. mystical thoughts. And I couldn't join the two. I just didn't think the two realms mm. blended at the time. And so my experience was very much that, and I didn't speak about it Um to people that I went to university with. So it was this, this massive um, disconnect, right? And I wanted to be able to integrate that within my own life and space and for other people, which I think is slightly missing. Um, so, so that's kind of what happened there. 
That's really not uh, common for us to look at that duality that we experience. I mean, that for, for in the Jungian lineage, right, that makes sense because he's talking about personality one and two and the scientists yeah. and the artists. And, you know, then you have this like, what is mysticism and all the critical, um, all, all the critiques that mysticism certainly experiences from really reductive materialistic lenses and the tension that exists between that kind of, can we measure it or... You know, not and, and certainly if you're studying dreams, you're in the world of the immeasurable. Right. <laughs> uh, so so you're and, and what you've what you've called in your book a couple of times, you know, which I certainly refer to as well as the seen and the unseen world. Yeah. And and we're if we're in the lineage of psychology, we're certainly dealing with the 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 remnants and the threads from behaviorism, um uh from from materialist philosophy that's saying like if it doesn't uh if you can't measure it, replicate it observe it, it doesn't exist. Right. Um, but, but something's changing in dreams, you know, so I got, here's a lob ball, a big question, right? Uh, through your research, you may be the best person to talk to this about. Um, why do we dream? What do you think? I think we dream so that every, I think every night we dream so that we can reconnect with the universal consciousness. And I think that that is the main reason why. And if we're not paying attention to our dreams and we're not creating a good container for them, our egoic mind gets in the way and our dreams reflect that. So I think we take cluttered thinking into the dream space as opposed to it being this thing that just happens to us. I very much believe dreams and waking life is such a huge bi-directional relationship. Um, so... I think we dream for that purpose so that we can reconnect to universal consciousness, source, spirit, mm -hmm. soul, whatever word you want to put in place there. And so that we can get that information from the dreamscape and use it positively in our waking lives. Yeah. I, I, a couple of defining terms, I get caught up there because I, you know, when you say universal consciousness, you know, I want to know what that means to you. And, um, and, and yeah, how do you, how do you define, how do you understand universal consciousness? Yes, I understand universal consciousness as all that is. That for me would be, yeah, that is what it, what I mean mm -hmm. when I say that. Yeah. I know. I love. I love this kind of this this subject matter in conversations, and it 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 occurs to me that our the nature of our consciousness, the the the, the means by which our consciousness functions is as a filter or limiter upon a broader and more expansive and more infinite. Yeah. You know, typically what people use is the image of the light spectrum. You know, they talk about the. You know, our human eye only sees so much, our ears only hear so much. And so those sensory systems are, are, are limiters. And not only do they only, they, they perceive only so much, but then our system together filters out a lot of what's happening in that sensory experience. Because if not, we'd be totally overwhelmed by so much uh, coming in that we, we couldn't differentiate and understand and you know, connect with it. So... Um, the, it also, though, can sound very um, ungrounded, and I'm putting mm -hmm. myself in the shoes of somebody like what we were talking about earlier, yeah. um, to say something like universal consciousness 
to a lot of people that's like, okay, what is this bullshit? Like what, what, I mean, you know, you, you have me here, but I'm wondering from, from somebody else, how do you, cause you've led workshops and dreams, right? How do you tend right. to people's skepticism? I, it becomes experiential for people. I think that the main thing is that if you open yourself up to the idea that there is a possibility that that is true, or it's just a possibility, never mind if it's true or not true, that that might be a possibility. Your dreams respond to that opening. And so I don't really have to do anything so much as the person has to pay attention to their own dreams. And so if someone's incredibly critical about that kind of thinking, where universal consciousness is just really not a term that they can relate to mm -hmm. and something that they don't feel like is real, then I would say meet your dreams in a way that you do feel comfortable. Because if you can just, if you can only go to your, if you can only work with your dreams in a way that feels safe, and that safety is only through, say, interpreting it in a symbolic way, I still believe that's helpful. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's limiting. I don't think that's the full scope of dreaming and you're not getting the full benefit of it. And when um, uh, when I have uh, incredibly skeptic people come up to me, I often ask them if they are able to lucid dream um, because lucid dreaming is so experiential and feels so real and tangible as much as waking life does that it opens up all sorts of bigger questions. And so maybe it's not really know about knowing finite answers, but really about being able to ask open-ended questions. And I think that's a very helpful way to approach dream, dream work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, you've inspired me after reading your, your book. I certainly feel like, because I pay, I pay attention to dreams. I write my dreams down. I, I work with people's dreams. I you know have read the collected works of Jung. I've read other folks that are commenting on dreams. I'm fascinated by it. But I, I got to say, when it comes to lucid dreaming, that's not been something that I've um, I've really been I've not been swimming in that pond. Um, I was speaking to somebody recently and mentioned you know talking to you about you know uh, uh, kind of investigating the subject of lucid dreams. Yeah. And this is a person who has a really active dream life and has written a book, in fact, on um, on their dreams. Yeah. And the the initial comment was that lucid dreaming feels kind of egoically minded. That it's it's just another way for the ego to maintain control and not be in a passive experiencing role, but try to be in a more active, engaged role. And it's actually counterintuitive to or counterproductive for what the value of dreams. Right. Will you answer for that critique? Sure. It's, I think, a brilliant critique and a helpful one because dreams put us in a receptive state and there is a level of you take your, your ego self with you in the dreamscape when you are lucid, right? Very much how we embody life. We, we are here, we're conscious, we're aware, and we move through life even though... I would argue that we're spiritual beings having this embodied experience, mm -hmm. right? So for lucid dreaming, the intention of why you're lucid dreaming in the first place is highly important and meaningful. Mm. If it's just to have 
Um, and I write, I approach it in my book in a very specific way because I wanted to awaken lucid dreaming in, in modern society. Um, so it's not something I talk about in depth, but you can have find enjoyment in a lucid dream and sometimes that's very that sometimes that's very helpful and can be seen as very egoic, right? So like flying, for example, or swimming underwater or um, whatever experience you want to have, those can be seen as very egoic experiences, and they certainly are. But they can also be seen as training experiences because in the lucid dreamscape, what you're coming to learn is that the natural laws that we are defined by in waking life are not the same in the dreamscape. And so if you can control the dreamscape and um, your actions in the, in the dreamscape, you have heightened a level of free, you've heightened or mastered a level of dream work. And then it gets interesting because you can move beyond actions of like, what do I want to do and what do I want to control? And you can interact with the entire dreamscape. And that, then it becomes very interesting. And in Bon Buddhism, the purpose of lucid dreaming is not just to lucid dream. Lucid dreaming is not the goal. Yeah. Lucid dreaming is the vehicle that you use to come in contact with your ultimate, the ultimate self or what Buddhists call clear light awareness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's used so that after the moment of death in what they call the bardo state, you are, you know, it's 41 days in, in Bon Buddhism where you experience visual imagery very much like how we experience our dreams. And then you get reincarnated. And so if you're lucid enough to recognize the imagery, you can leave, you can abdicate from reincarnation. I might not be saying this in Bon Buddhist language, but that's the thinking behind right. it. And you become enlightened, right? You can move to a higher state of consciousness or awareness or being or whatever word you want to put it in, put in there. So lucid dreaming to me is just this incredible um, experience that or practice that you can use to heighten awareness and consciousness. And so, yes, it can be very egoic if you take it to that level or you only use it at that level, but it can also be incredibly, it just can be incredible. You can have really incredible experiences and very meaningful ones. So, and then who knows, after death, you know, um, yeah, one Buddhist might be right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I appreciate that answer because it, it's kind of like all of it, like I, sex, sleeping, eating, I can go at all those things from an egoic perspective, or I can, you know, have a degree of reverence and intentionality. And I guess I, one of the things I really liked about the way you contextualize lucid dreaming in the book was that it did feel like a practice. It didn't feel like, oh, cool, I was flying. It felt like, no, there's something very reverent and preparatory. And I got to say that it was helpful for you to bring in the Bon Buddhism that you did. Uh, or you know the Tibetan practices because that that to me is has got some juice. Uh, what yeah. what what brought you to the Tibetan uh, worldview? So I mean because I'm, I was a self-taught lucid dreamer, I never went to you know um, I didn't do a training. I didn't go and train to become a lucid dreamer. And when I was when I decided to write the book, I wanted to have a framework that I could offer 
people different insights. And I feel like the Tibetan Bon Buddhist one is probably the most accessible one, um, at least in terms of finding research. Lucid dreaming practices or practices, or at least in my from my research, it's actually very difficult to find original um, documents that speak to it because most of the time it's through oral tradition that the lucid mm. dream is passed down. So lucid dreaming or shamanic dreaming, there are a lot of cultures that speak about it or Shintoism um, that speak about aspects of it, but they don't tell you exactly how to do it. So it's kind of like knowing the topic, but not knowing the how. And um, there's a great book called, oh, I can't remember the name, um, Tibetan Dream Yoga. I think that's actually the name. I'll have to give you the, the link after this interview so we can reference it properly. And it was a, a Buddhist who decided to share his knowledge with the West. And he just decided it was time for a change. And so that's kind of what sparked my interest in the one Buddhist practices, probably because they're most open currently. But I mean, if you go into the Buddhist training, you have to train for about three years to gain access to doctrines and yeah that seems more like it not like uh yeah i yeah i just i think in large part you know um i recently started a a, a process an initiation process and the the stats on this one process is that 90 percent of people that start quit in the first portion you know and <laughs> similarly, like, I think, I think the research I read on uh, doctoral students is that 50% of uh, doctoral students quit after, stop doing it, sorry, I'm not, they stop after coursework, you know, when they go yeah. into dissertation. And so it, you know, yeah, like, there is something about, like, w the, the process itself kind of naturally burns off um, uh, yeah. folks that either aren't, aren't, you know, I don't know whether it's a moral thing or whether it's just an intentionality thing or a discipline thing or whatever, but when you're writing about the subject, I really got more of an expansive understanding of the potential for lucid dreaming more than I've ever had. I ever have. Um, so, so let's, let's talk about dreaming for a second, just in general. Um, so let's, so, so kind of go further down that rabbit trail about not just why we dream, but what have you noticed about dreams and people's relationships to their dreams um through all the because because you you lead retreats you've worked as a psychotherapist and a psychologist you've um you've held containers for folks um so what have you what have you found out or what do you see consistently i think for the most part i feel like the modern world most people are so disconnected from their dreams that initially what i see is kind of shock that oh wow it works there's really a lot of content here. And unless we're in very sort of analytic spaces and in dreaming is a bit different. But so my experience has been people saying like, oh, I didn't realize my dream, dream life is that rich. And then also recognizing the resistance to what actually comes up. Because a lot of the time, people then recognize, well, your dreams are very intimate and they're giving you a lot of information. And sometimes that catches people of God, mm -hmm. um, or at least has been been my experience in workshops particularly. Um, so it kind of goes 
I think people sometimes approach it like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn how to interpret my dreams. I'm gonna be able to analyze it. I'm gonna, you know, get this message, and then you kind of open this door, and you walk, and you've opened it, and now you're walking through this, this threshold into your entire inner world um, and everything that's going on for you. So, yeah, it's it's wild. <laughs> Well, it gets it gets wild. I mean, if if you don't mind yeah. sharing sharing this story, I, I think of a uh, something you wrote about, which is a a woman who is starting to lose a dream, who met some figure in her dream, and then later met a monk. Uh, would you would you share that? Because I think that that sure. that's such a uh, that made me <laughs> feel very excited, but also kind of blew my mind. Right. So um, this story is of a woman called Fariba Borgensteiner, and she is also a psychologist, I think. I think she's a research psychologist, if I'm not mistaken. And she's a expert lucid dreamer, and she had these lucid dreams where she meets this Buddhist monk in her dreamscape that lucidly through a lucid dream and she just you know she had these interactions with him where the monk would tell her all sorts of insightful things and she'd really um sort of integrate the information that she was receiving and on waking she just woke up and assumed that it was a meaningful aspect of herself that it was a meaningful part of her psyche or inner self yeah and and that's you know so that's what she thought i think most of us or at least a lot of people would think that, that that's, wow, that's a part of me, that's my, maybe my inner guide personified or whatever, whatever image makes sense to me. And something like 12 years later, she was at a talk or a workshop and she met the monk um, who had featured in her dream, her lucid dream so often. And they had this entire conversation. He was like, well, where do I know you from? There's actually a video of her sharing the story on YouTube. And she was like, oh, we know each other from the dreamscape. And he went on to teach her how to lucid dream even further. And, and now she also, you know, teaches her life about it and works with it. So the lucid dreamscape is really, it's, it's not just your psyche. It's not just your inner world. You're interacting with something far more uh, numinous and exciting, in my opinion, um, than, than just, aspects of self um and that's where it gets weird yeah (laughs) you know like so so let's talk a little bit about the structure of the psyche because i know you and i would have a shared perspective here um a, a, a lot of times we imagine that our our psyche the structure of our psyche is a closed system and and what i liked what what i was struck by i don't know if if you shared this i imagine you did what I'm so struck by with with a Jungian kind of um, worldview is that that closed system becomes kind of open at the bottom and connected to all the what what you know to use your term the universals of uh, patterns. You know, one might say on one level it's that we're connected with a lineage of through our evolutionary history, but it even gets weirder than that. It's like well, we have to look at the, our understanding of consciousness, and there are these weird things that tend to happen that connect us uh, through time and space in ways right. that shouldn't happen based upon how we understand consciousness and physics and you know, uh, social spaces and, and the like. Right. So 
Um, what, what I liked about that story so much is you've got these two figures who are like having dreams of each other for years, and then they come to meet each other in the outer, outer world and, and say, oh my gosh, you know, what was working on us? But, but you note the most important piece for me is how often I define or understand something as symbolic rather than literal. And that's, that's what's been totally mind-blowing for me when you can take a dream image and say, oh no, this is a symbol, it's my, my you know, inner guide. When no, it's literally somebody who's similarly engaged in a space that doesn't make any sense to us. So, so I think that as we as we kind of navigate through this territory, it's important to position some of our psyche. Um, and you critique any of this because I want to have a shared language, which is the ego, this kind of known self, um, and then the unconscious, which blips up on our radar screen and experience it, we experience it as other. Now that is both outer other and inner other, and and so would you would you kind of fill in some of the blanks of this um, the structure of the psyche that I that I'm starting and borrowing from some of your book too? Would you help populate our minds with kind of how you see that, and then we'll get in further into dreaming, and then in particular lucid dreaming. Right. So I think it's exactly um, exactly what you said. You know, you got your the ego self, and then you are in contact with the unconscious, both outside and inside, and then your personal unconscious. So I guess in terms of structure of the psyche, I would say that, I mean, for me, this is something that I guess I grapple with as well, that you, is it personally orientated or is it just archetypes exactly what's in Jungian thought? And I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I like that answer. Yeah. yeah. You know, so in terms of the structure of the psyche, I don't even know if I could populate that accurately, if I mm -hmm. could give and um, position it. But what I would say is I come from the perspective that when you are dreaming and what you're seeing, if you can equate it back to your waking life, then you're likely dealing with something that is um, symbolic and, and part of the psyche and part of the inner structure, right? Um, whereas if it's something that comes really out of the blue or leaves you feeling very, um, it just leaves you feeling quite, there's something there, there's a gravitas mm -hmm, to what mm -hmm, you're feeling, mm -hmm. then I think that you're dealing with something other. And then we're talking about that, like you said, that open space at the bottom, you know. Um, so I don't think that helped at all. I'd really have to think about this, actually. No, I mean, I think that's totally honest, and me too. You know, I think the point is to struggle with it and try to understand. I get, but this, the, the, the story about this woman and the Tibetan monk, uh, to me, that's the, that's the biggest challenge, because I can understand that I am both self, ego, and other, and there are parts of me I experience as other, and they will show up in my dreams, and I will project them out onto nature and other people and other institutions, and, yeah. and we're, we're interconnected in that way. What starts to get weird is when there is like a consensus yeah. external reality other that, yeah. you, that, that's beyond my understanding of how the world and reality works, that shakes us to our core, and we say, "Wait a second! Like something more is here." Something, and I, I, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I just know that I was talking to a guy named Mark Ryan recently, and we had a great conversation on um, a couple of episodes ago. 
And it was in reference to William James, you know, who's saying like, look, 99.9% of all this weird, you know, new age, uh, wildly kind of unmeasurable stuff could be patently totally 100% false, just full of bullshit. But if 0.1% happens, then, and I don't know, scientifically, that's not a really good argument, but, but what did it, what did at least hints at is that there are limitations to our worldview and that we are consistently in relationship to an evolving worldview and we need to be flexible enough to respond to that and that's why i think this dreaming stuff is so important because it continues to kind of push at our conscious orientation any any thoughts definitely i think there's two things there the first one for me is that we very much come from a perspective that our dreams are something unique to us, at least from a Western perspective, I would say a Western modern or contemporary perspective. Our dreams are something that are private, they happen to us, we don't really participate in them, and they're generally something that we look at, you know, they talk to, our dreams speak to us about the past or the present, not really the future. I would say that's the predominance thinking you know yeah. and we take that worldview and we project that onto our dream uh, dream space or dream mm-hmm. world or whatever you want to call it and to me that i find that to be actually a critical error because the minute you can remove the the, the limitations of i guess what we think it is and just open yourself up to the idea that it could be something entirely mm-hmm. different you start to have experiences that prove that to you. And, and that is, I guess, what we would call mysticism, right? Where you're having this direct experience of something that you can't explain. It isn't that 1% of, you know, unexplainable or what the whole sort of new age thinking is about, but it's very different when you're experiencing it and very different if you're someone who doesn't get easily swayed. Mm. And so dreams for me are very um, meaningful because it's not just about me it's actually about the collective we it's about what's coming to pass it's about yes my own stuff my own internal um inner world my psyche my consciousness my ego all those things because those things are helpful to me in my waking life but there's so much more than that so i think it's it's kind of limitation that we have you know most ancient cultures I would say in most dream cultures um, or cultures that really honored dreaming, really viewed dreams as information, I guess, from the gods, that there was something hugely important about dreaming and they were to be honored, you know, and I think we've lost that in modern society and through that loss, through that, that lack of thinking that they're meaningful dreams in a way adapt to that kind of thinking. Um, so it's complex because I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so layered. Um, but I think if for anyone who's listening to this and maybe, you know, they're thinking, I'm, I don't believe any, any, in any new age things, I would say good. Don't take anything just at face value belief, but try and see for yourself. Mm-hmm. At least give yourself the room to try and explore. And I would say with dream work, that's at least 
three to six months as a minimum journey if you can and then on the other side of that if you still think like well you know whatever I recognize some old patterns from childhood or you know my neighbor was irritating me and I dreamt I drove into them whatever it is if that's all it ever gets to then that's okay too um but if you open up the door I really do think you can incredible but it, it requires ceasing I guess ceasing judgment I, I heard somewhere that let's get uh, we can even be materialists for a second that um, a, a large person like a good solid percentage of scientific innovation has been uh, the insight came through dream right you know th there's there's a lot of examples of that in our penicillin is one of them I think there was like yeah so Benzene came through a dream. Einstein is—I mean, the list goes on and on and on. If you find it, right? It's literally you—you're tapped into something so much bigger. And that's what I don't ever get, you know, because we can—we can actually say no. There, there are measurable, identifiable, historic patterns that seem to suggest that there's something powerful that happens, yet it's still written off. I mean, I guess it's because there's such a an abundance of, pardon me, but bullshit, that it's it's really difficult to wade through everything, and and I get that, I I totally understand that, but but to throw the baby out with the bathwater and to not recognize, um, you know, there there are there are values, you know, and um, again, what I what's different to me about talking to you and reading your work is that it's not a dream book, it's a lucid dreaming book. Right. So, so would you? Uh, you said three to six months earlier, and I got excited because I, uh, my, 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 my literal brain needs a how-to. You know, I want to have a, a lesson plan. <laughs> uh, so, what, what is your lesson plan? What do you recommend people do who are saying, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll follow you for three or six months and see what happens. What's your instruction? Oh. You say welcome. Um. <laughs> Build rapport. Yeah. Yeah, I think the first thing is that if, if. Someone, I mean, I know you work with your dreams, right? You journal your dreams down and you, and you write mm -hmm. them down. Just on a fundamental level, working with your symbolic dreams, I feel helps lucid dreaming. So just becoming conscious of what's going on for you daily through dream recall is really helpful. And then for lucid dreaming, it's actually waking day practices that can really help, right? And practices that you can integrate into your life very easily. So things like, beginning to pay attention to how much attention you pay in your waking life is very helpful mm. so for example like it's just that being very present you know okay so I'm, I'm sitting here my hands are against the table I'm here now and I'm paying attention and I'm very and um, and you pay attention to quite tactile things how you feel in your body um, you know, you can ask yourself questions like, is this a dream? And this is a technique that isn't mine. It's from all the other lucid dream teachers who came before me. They'll say like, you know, try push your hand against the wall and see if the wall, if your hand goes through the wall. And you do this practice in your waking life so that in a dream, if you come up, as a, come up in a situation where you find a wall, you can push your hand through the wall and, and you can recognize that you're dreaming. And that triggers lucidity. Hmm. So the practice begins in your waking life by really becoming mindful of, is, this a, is there a possibility that waking reality is like a dream? Number one. And then number two, 
are you present in your life so that if you are in a dream, uh, you find yourself in a dream that you can pick up on anomalies that present themselves. Like, for example, and I love using this example because it's so normal and so mundane, which so many dreams are, right? Where, say, you at your sibling's house, if you have a sibling, and you walk through their house, and you go to the back garden, and you see a massive pool in the dream. And then there's a moment where you think, like, oh, wait, my sister doesn't have a pool in her house. This has to be a dream. And in that moment, that, that small window, you are given an opportunity to become more aware and awake, into, I believe, in terms of consciousness and, and what ancient texts have said for me, affords you the opportunity. So for a three to six month plan, I would say just start with that. And most people who practice that, I mean, I know there are going to be some people out there who say that's total rubbish, but most people, you don't have to do this for very long to start seeing that your dreams will start responding to you in mm -hmm. quite profound ways to try and wake you up. And I mean that in consciousness, not to wake your body up, but to wake your consciousness up. So, for example, I had, um, I share this in the book, I had an experience where I was on holiday and I had a really, quite an irritating neighbor who was making a lot of noise. and. At the time, I hadn't really, um, I, I wasn't very connected to my lucid dream practice. I wasn't lucid dreaming. I was very tired and quite exhausted in my waking life. And anyway, so this situation came up where I was on holiday. I wanted to have this peaceful and relaxing holiday. And I had this really irritating neighbor. And so I dreamt, I had a dream where the same neighbor was in a work conference. And... And I was, I was so frustrated. I was so irritated, even in my dream space, in my dreamscape. And through that frustration, I recognized, oh, wait, he can't be here. He can't be at my work. He was, he was there on holiday. I have to be dreaming. But what was interesting to me wasn't that exactly. It was that the next few dreams that I had were dreams that mentioned his name. And so what that meant for me is that my dreamscape, my dream world, I don't even want to call it that, I want to say the dreamscape was trying to wake me up, I really feel, to the fact that I was aware that I was dreaming. And I think our dreams are actually trying to do that very often. And I think that's where the symbolic and the literal really get enmeshed. And it can be very hard to sort of pull what is what without just doing it experientially. Um, yeah. Say more about that. The, the dream wants something. Yeah, I really think that there's a part of, I mean, I don't know how to define this, but consciousness would want us to become more conscious, mm -hmm. um, you know? And so if you're having all these experiences in your dreams or all these markers that are trying to wake you up, to awareness that has to mean something, or at least yeah. it means something for me. Yeah, the, the thing that comes up for me is that um, a pattern of nature and anybody in like com complexity theory or uh, biology might have a great answer for this. Yeah. If you do, comment. You know, I want to hear it. But 
what my initial thought is that like um, evolution and adaptation are natural patterns and processes that we're all subjected to as living beings on. And so that like I loved William Blake's work when he talked about the Eternals and or if we look at something like Greek mythology and we recognize that the fundamental difference between humans and the gods is the immortality. And we can then make that leap and say, well, there are forces that operate outside of the human will. And these are forces that we're all subjected to. And I, I would say evolution is one of those forces. So, so it, it makes a little sense to me to posit growth as a power and a force that is operating. And the dream would be the dream or imagination or um, little blips of intuition would all go under the heading of a force that is operating in service to our adaptation and evolution. And I think a lot of times we call that God. Sure. And so yeah. at least that's, that's where I, I go when it comes to like what would get me into a willingness because I'm, I'm of that kind of mystical desire, which is like, I don't want to dream because I want to work out a problem that I've got with such and such. I mean, I want to like, <laughs> I want to talk to God, man. I want to like, or whatever that is, you know, whatever that is. I want to have a direct experience of something powerful that uh, is transformative. And, um, uh, and, and I, that's, the, that's the juice that I got from, from your book. And that's why I'm excited to take you up on your three to six month uh, proposition <laughs> and, and pay attention. So how do I do it? Let me be one of your workshop people. And sure. how are you going to tell me after my three to six months or how do I engage my dreams in a way that can provide me this relationship with uh, more or the other? I think the main thing is to practice at the beginning um, just trying to become as lucid as possible. And um, so that is just really the number one step, right? What's very helpful, um, they're, they're very like pragmatic techniques that you can use to help to help you stabilize um, yourself within the dream once you've become aware. So say you do have a lucid dream, which I really wouldn't be surprised if it happened actually, um, just simply through talking about it. But say you have a lucid dream, what tends to happen the first time is that you actually, people get, we get excited. People go, oh, wow, I'm dreaming. And that excitement, <laughs> it's like, oh, it knocks you right up. You know, you either wake yourself up or that's actually mostly what happens. You know, you wake yourself up or, or people lose consciousness and they fall back into sleep. Eh? So it's really important to just be able to kind of tone down that emotional response or to be able to recognize like, okay, I just need to ground myself a little bit so that I can continue lucidly in the dream state. And then I would say, if you can do that, and, and it's a basic mindfulness technique, is to just literally, I, I think I share it in the book, is to just focus on your feet in the dream. So if you do find yourself spontaneously lucid in a dream, you just focus your attention onto your feet and that usually just calms the energy down. It's almost quite similar if you're trying to interrupt a panic attack, say for example, you'd, you'd use kind of similar techniques, right? So that's that would be the second step. You calm yourself down. Okay, cool, I'm lucid. I can meet God if I want. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then this, this suggestion comes from a lucid dream teacher called Robert Wagner, and he was really one of the OGs in 
in the West, and he says, projections be gone. And so what you're doing with that statement, and this is where I think my work deviates completely from psychological realms, is that you are then stating out loud that you're no longer working with symbolic content. It is no longer symbolic. You can treat it like you would treat it, treat your waking life, like how people are present in your waking life. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes that works fully and sometimes it doesn't, right? So, for example, I had an experience where I became lucid and I cleared out. I always tend to clear out my projections. I don't, I, I don't really, it's not my intention on my lucid dreamscape to work symbolically. And I was met with a, a very scary, very scary figure um, that was like, like just I guess would be this dark I would almost say like a demonic figure and um, completely freaked me out and in a lucid dream everything feels real but you are aware awake so just imagine that like in your waking life you've been presented with a demon it is very um very jarring right and mm. so I was like Symbol be gone, symbol, symbol, you know, out of here, out of here, I'm not interested in you. <laughs> uh, and my dreamscape was not having any of that. So, you know, I really um, learned, I, I, what I did is I just paid attention to what was, what was, I guess, symbol or entity wanted to um, say and do. And, and at the end of it, I recognized it was actually just a shadow part of myself and it was a very severe symbolic um, representation of it. And, and I knew that because once I've met that, that figure with love and acceptance, it dissolved, it disappeared. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it is, it's, it's really practice again so that's the that would be the third step but it's not a clear step right so if you were back to the original question of what you do for the three to six month practice you learn how to become lucid you stabilize your body your dream body you clear out your symbols and then you ask the dreamscape directly what you're wanting to discover and you just open yourself up to whatever that is and that's where you know, originally we were talking about it being this very active process. That's where it becomes very receptive and very mm. open because even though you're aware and you are, you can direct things if you need to, you can, nothing can really hurt you, but you are opening yourself up to becoming receptive. So that's what I teach in my workshops and ready for me is the goal. And then if people want to take that even further, I think it ultimately is what the Buddhists say where it's not about imagery it's not about symbols it's really about the consciousness behind those things and and trying to connect with um i guess oneness or clear light or whatever you want to call it well that's uh, the maria maria sabina what she said about um uh mushrooms you know psych psychedelic experience she said yeah you can look at the pretty pictures if you like yeah. You know, and I've always loved that because it's like, yeah, you can, you know, you yeah. can do what you like, but if you really want to dive in and experience something, so it that's so fascinating to me. The idea of let me let me 
um, put this into my own words and see if this is correct. What I hear you saying is that when I kind of demons be gone, <laughs> you know, am, you know, yeah. that that if they disappear, it's a little like I think you even said this at one point in the book, the monkey mind kind of stuff, like little anxieties, fears, you know, like stuff that is uh, kind of low end on the totem pole. Sure. But what I what I hear is that the things that don't just disappear are the things that need to be connected with, confronted, communed with, talked to, so on and so forth. Correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. And also, just on that note, right, the things that you connect with, I guess I always give the warning of the negative because I don't want to leave anyone in a space that feels uncontained. But you can also have incredible experiences where you can meet um you know, you could meet a guide, you could, and I, I mean that in a sense, like a guide outside of yourself, a different, not an inner guide, a guide, right? And not necessarily a guide like how Fariba met a guide where it's just another human in in waking life. I really believe that you can meet more numinous consciousness, really. How often do you, how often are you able to lucidly dream? It really depends on what's going on for me in my waking life, but I practice something called wake-induced lucid dreaming, and I work a lot with the hypnagogic space of um, dream entry, and I try to practice it at least twice a week. I don't always succeed, um, especially if I'm very stressed out. I think sleep is one of those things also where lucid dreaming really becomes a practice and a process and really something that you do, It's um, you know, it's a, it's a lifelong thing. There isn't a destination. There's no arrival point, really, you know? So for me, I'd say I have at least a couple of lucid dreams every month, but I try to have more. Um, and I really, really try to do that through wake-induced lucid dreaming, which is where you go to sleep and you kind of walk your consciousness through the... You're falling asleep, but you maintain your awareness. So your body is becomes... It falls asleep, it's sound asleep, but you walk your consciousness through and um, the hypnagogic state. And then if you can sustain your energy and your awareness into the dream state. Um, and that's incredibly helpful. So you're talking about a term that it took me a de- degree in psychology to know hypnagogic. You know, and right. I really like that because it is a literal liminal space we go into every day, hopefully. Um so uh, talk about that for a moment. Like what, what, because that to me is one of the first things I'm going to start doing is when I start going to, you know, close my eyes and really being a little more aware of what comes up, because that's been a wild experience before for me. That's where all the weird shit happens. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, I'd be keen to hear about your experiences, but the hypnagogic state is so interesting because for me, it's, if you experience it for yourself, the the idea that our waking life and our sleep and then dream life is so separate seems to disappear because you are, it takes like, it's almost like a switch. You just turn the switch on in your mind and you're now conscious in a state that most people say that you can't be conscious in or that you're only, you know, aware and dreaming at specific hours in a night pattern. And so 
the hypnagogic state is ready for anyone who's interested in altered states um, of consciousness, mm -hmm. anyone who wants insight, um, anyone who's struggling with anything, you can use that time and that liminal passageway in, in multiple ways. The only thing is, for most people, if you've never experienced that experience of falling asleep, but then remaining awake, I guess, or conscious, um, the sounds that you hear and the images that you can that you see can be quite overwhelming. So it's quite helpful to know that those sounds and images are quite normal. And even if they feel very intense, they, they actually generally feel intense. And that's quite helpful to know. And re I remember when I was a kid, I, I used to hear people talking all the time. And it would like... I, I mean, I, I remember one one memory in particular, and you wrote that, and I thought, well, that that is. I I thought I was hearing voices everywhere, and of course, I'm like, oh, this <laughs> is this okay? You know, like this is not normal stuff, and yeah. uh, and it so it felt like okay. I wish I wish I had somebody guiding me through that, you know, because it was mm -hmm. a the hypnagogic. When I used to I used to meditate at night, and uh, I, I moved to mornings. I haven't. I had a regular practice for a while, but I used to have a very regular practice. And uh, at night, it was difficult for me because I would see these crazy images and wild, like, talk about demon faces. And it would just, it was a lot because I was falling asleep. You know, I was like exhausted and I'd go into meditation and, you know, do my head nod. Um, so, so how do you work with hypnagogic states? I think the main thing is the again the intention behind it mm -hmm. um so really there's not much that you can there's not much that you can do other than go through it right but what i found happens is that the more you do dream work and i mean that in like even you know symbolic dream work re regular dream work and lucid dream work the hypnagogic imagery that you see begins to change mm -hmm. um and i think that's because you know I don't know exactly why that is. I think it's because the psyche becomes more integrated, actually, and that the imagery changes. So if you're working with it, I'd say just keep a very open mind and just let what comes up for you come up. But what can be quite helpful to do, um, and I think, you know, man, I wish I had known this as a kid because I had so many crazy experiences and I really thought they were real. I didn't understand I was sleeping. I didn't understand I was going through the passageway of sleep and, you know, I would be in my room and I would see all these things and they freaked me out completely when I was younger, you know. And so if I think as an adult um, or even for kids, if your kids have these experiences, it can be very helpful to just do something simple where before sleep you set an intention or you you know you do a meditation where you feel like you're you're clearing the energy in your room or in in the space and i think what that does from a psychological perspective is that the intention is then planted that you are safe that no matter what you're traveling through the hypnagogic imagery or whatever through your sleep you have almost like planted a seed that then comes true and i do think that on an energetic level that could be very helpful much like how cultures stage um rooms or do energy clearing you know yeah so it's multifaceted but you can approach it in any way that you like really i think the main thing though is to be open are there stories that come to mind uh whether it's you know people that you can share about 
kind of how to, for anybody listening who wants to give this a shot, what are some orienting stories? You know, what can they expect? What has happened to people you've worked with before? What's your experience of it? So my experience with it, now that I'm more proficient in it, is that the main thing that will happen is that you'll see, when you close your eyes, you'll see images like um, like lines that move and they become shapes. And then these shapes become images, but flat images, like you're looking at a photograph. And hi, you know, you're crossing over the threshold or you're really stepping into, um, you know, you've moved beyond the waking state quite fully is that the photograph is no longer photograph. It's no longer flat. It's more 3D. It's like how we are sitting in whatever rooms we're sitting in or wherever you're listening to. And the, the imagery becomes animated around you. So you're no longer watching something. You're part of it. Um, and, and that's how you know you're kind of crossing the threshold. The imagery really changes and is so varied. And is, you know, I've heard so many stories for so many people. A lot of people, a lot of people see nature. Um, I think there's something very primal to that, that we see nature imagery as we're about to fall asleep. Um, I think they, that's quite special. I mean, my experience of it was the, the first time I, um, you know, not the first time, but one of the experiences that I share, I saw monkeys, but more like a, a sort of like artwork. I saw this flat image of all these monkeys and I was like, wow, those are so cool. They're really cool monkeys. And I was kind of losing my awareness. I wasn't fully aware. I think I was kind of starting to fall asleep. And then within a split second, there's a monkey standing right next to me. And it, it really like it was like, whoa, this it's like an image. And then all of a sudden you're in a you're in a room full of monkeys. So that's kind of what the experience is like. Um, it's very much, I think, what you know, shamans talk about going on a vision quest. You're going on a vision quest. You're trying to seek a vision, right? You gotta th cross the threshold of consciousness to be able to do that. And the more practice that you become in walking your conscious consciousness through wake, wakefulness, sleep, and then into dreaming, you're really working with different states of, of consciousness. And so what you can expect is really, I believe, what's meant for you. Um, so I think that, you know, it's a bit of an elusive answer, but I think it's the most honest one that I can give. Is it tiring? I mean, do you get rest? You Yes, you do get rest, right? The wake-induced lucid dreaming can be a bit tiring because, well, at least for people who, um, it depends what your intention is. Again, most of the time when I practice wake-induced lucid dreaming, I then wake myself up, I mean, my body up from the lucid dream so that I can remember my experience because I'm trying to do work that, I find easier to do in my dreamscape or I have access to a lot more than I do in my waking life. So for me, that can interrupt your sleep. That lucid dreaming, my general experience and that of other teachers is that most of the time you actually wake up very energized. Um, it's not depleting. Uh, and I'm not sure why that is, but it is the case. But mm -hmm. yeah, at the beginning, you can expect that your sleep cycle might be interrupted you might feel a bit tired um 
that it doesn't really last that long. Bell of mindfulness. I know, actually, the aircon. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay, I want to get into something you were talking about in the very last portion of your book. Um, yes. So you were talking about inner guides earlier. And uh, of course, I turned right to this page where you have psychopomp. Um, and that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. You know, it wise to leave this for chapter 11, you know, because this is like, this is yeah, the, yeah. like, set the table, get everything set, and then you can really get into the depth of it. So what is a psychopomp? And how does that how does that figure image show up in dreams and why and all that stuff? Right. So the psychopomp in the way that I understood it is a soul guide. And if we look at the word, I mean, I know a lot of people who are listening to this will probably know this, but the word psyche means soul. Um, and I think in the modern terms, we've come to think of the psyche in a very different way. But a psychopomp is a soul guide. And we met with psychopomps in stories often, right? They are figures that help generally, you know, I would say the hero um, to cross over or move through a change or a transition or a threshold or a liminal space. And in dreaming, I really think we come into contact with a psychopomp a lot closer. And I think that depending on what your belief systems are, you can, a psychopomp can be very helpful if you are dealing with people who have passed away. Um, and so, or if you're currently going through a transition, a psychopomp might appear. And I mean, they might appear symbolically. So in your rate, you know, your symbolic dreams, you might have figures that appear like a psychopomp. I think that's um, a given. And then in lucid dreaming, you can uh, meet figures. I guess for me, when I wrote that part in the book, I wanted to ground that information for people um, I wanted to make it, I think personifying it makes it helpful in understanding it. Ultimately, though, my belief system is that there isn't just a psychopomp that's out there in the dreamscape active. I don't actually believe that. But I do think there's consciousness that can mimic an image in a way that is helpful to the person dreaming it and um, seeing it. So I guess I just wanted to preface that. The the image that came up for me was Contact. Did you ever see the movie? Yeah, it's a great movie. Great, and and I love the way they did the very end of it. It's like uh, this the 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 figure says, "Hey, I had to come in in the form of something that was going to be relatable." Right. And and you know what I am beyond that, and that's I guess the symbolic language. So the symbol points to something else. You know, the sign is what it is. A stop sign is a stop sign. Um, the uh, Jim Hollis told me once. I like this very much. Is that you know the cross on the church can can mean you know it's a church or it can connect the individual with something more sacred like their relationship to christ or their relationship to christianity or so on and so forth um so the the existence of a psychopomp is for for i think we should say that it doesn't just show up in dreams we can project it out there onto other figures but but when you do this kind of whether it's hypnotherapy or get into a trance state there are times where you can meet these figures, um, yeah. whether it's an animal or a person or a thing, um, 
that can inspire us to take take it out of the dream space into waking life. Right. And then it works on us there. So why do you, why why don't you think more people this may be kind of a lame question but I am curious why don't you think more people pay attention to their dreams I think that I, originally I thought it was a western thing this but I've come to see through my work that's incorrect I think most people don't pay attention to their dreams because in mass media dreams have been made fun of at least in Western thought, you know, it's been trivialized. A lot of the dreaming that you see in TV, it's often sort of, it kind of goes back to Freudian thought. You know, you're dreaming about a mother, it's all about sex, it's all about these right. things that you, that it's, you know, you things that you should be ashamed or embarrassed about. And I think that thought, that thinking limits dream work because, well, then who wants to do it? You know, if I, if I, <laughs> I don't want to know that. Who wants to know that? No one, right? And I think it's also so orientated towards the past. We often think of, you know, dreams about the past or it's about emotional regulation, which I think are very helpful things. But then dreaming is not just about that. And so I think that that also comes into conflict with modern thinking about can you, you know, are precognitive dreams real? And can you have prophetic dreams can you have these kind of things and I think a lot of people would say no because of um contemporary thinking and I think that's inaccurate you know there's a great um I think he's an astrophysicist that I write about in the book as well and he's researched he worked for I think the gee I think it was like the CIA or the US government or mm. something like that and they studied retrocausality and dreaming and precognitive dreams for like 25 years you know um so I think that we need to catch a wake up actually I think as modern mm. people we really need to catch a wake up because I think dreaming also really if you do take it as okay well maybe our dreams are giving us insight into very probable futures right call improbable futures if a dream can give you insight into a probable future but in waking life you have the ability to say maybe act differently or to call in something different or to do something different that has profound implications right hugely profound implications and i think that's quite overwhelming for a lot of people <laughs> the idea that that might be happening nightly can feel quite scary you said something to start about your assumptions about the West, and it it brought up your cultural heritage and how, how how. In what ways, um, growing up in South Africa, how does that affect that your views on spirit, universal consciousness, and what what do you see in the Western culture also that um, that would create that limitation on dreams? I think it's, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I guess because of my personal experience growing up in South Africa and then my family history, it's quite complicated. My um, parents come from, uh, you know, they're war survivors. They were refugees. That's how my family landed up in South Africa. And, you know, they, um, my parents are Greek Cypriots and in a Greek culture 
or mythologically speaking, in ancient Greek cultures, dreaming dreams were valued. Um, so in our household, I wouldn't say our dreams were prized, but they were definitely something that we spoke about. You know, as for like the cultural overtone of South Africa or South Africans, I really think it depends on um, who you are within the country, very much like anywhere else in the world, like in the US or Australia, or, you know, I, I was speaking to someone from Taiwan the other day, and it's exactly the same thing, hmm. um, you know, the cultural overtone of the place. So, yeah, I mean, it's layered. You say that you're, you're, you have lineage from ancient Greece. So um, my parents are actually from Cyprus, but they linked Greece and, and mm -hmm. Cyprus, so yes, yeah. That's just been an area I've been studying a lot lately. I'm, I'm learning Greek right now, and so I'm kind of deep uh -huh. into the, it's what a fantastic, you know, there's something so radical about that language system that right. uh, I, as somebody who grows up totally Western and Northern European is my heritage, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, letters are letters, they're signs. But for the, the Greek that I'm learning, each letter had an, it was an image. It was a, it was a symbol. You know, right. That sets up a radically different approach to the, the language and the, 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 the capacity to imagine. And one of the things my teacher said that was fascinating, he said, you know, the, the Latin um, really was a language for engineers. It was a, a, for measurement and structure. And then Greek was a language of symbolic magic. Uh, yeah. uh, so that the, the idea of how culture influences uh, our perception is, is kind of on the, it's on the, um, the for, in the foreground for me. And that's why I ask. Um, yeah. And you said you're, you're, <laughs> pardon me? That's really nice, That What a nice experience to go through. I mean, I'd love to say that I'm fluent in Greek, but I'm not, so maybe you'll have to teach me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I need about a year and a half, I think. Yeah. Of, uh, But I'm doing weird stuff, you know, just reading uh, reading biblical text um, in, in Greek, linear, linear, like, it's, to me, it's, it's very exciting, but I, I guess the, the, the thing that it's, that's coming up for me so much is that we all have have adapted to a way of seeing the world right. based upon our you know early religion, culture, gender, sexuality, uh, spirituality, time of birth, place of birth, so on and so forth, and that informs how we see reality. Sure. And and I'm re I'm very, just very interested on the ways in which being in this kind of Western lineage that I'm definitely in. Um, yeah how that influences my perceptions and that's that's a, the lineage that you and i are both in if we take freud and jung for example the freudian thing was reductive the jungian right. thing was not and they fight you know they they, well, they, yeah. they battle each other yeah. what was your um i'm curious about your psychoanalytic training was that i mean was that all freud it was mainly was a lot of thinkers it was freud we studied the original text in, in some of the classes that we did it was winnicott and klein mostly awesome. yeah. um yeah and we did probably a week on young <laughs> you know there's not enough time <laughs> so just yeah gave us a footnote <laughs> it's common 
Now, yeah, I, I took that. I took that footnote and did a doctorate in it. I was yeah. like, yeah, that's the footnote I want, man. Yes. Yeah. I totally understand why. I really think if it had been in another time, another place, I think I probably would have gone on to do a PhD in in Korean. It's a little radical. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like now, now what I do with it is I study religion. You know, Which and is that. Wonderful. That's that's uh, yeah. I I kind of realized that religion is really the study of consciousness. I say just, just it's it is a one way that we have understood, mythologized, and represented you know our relationship to reality and the other. And I, I just love looking at different cultures and trying to figure out what what that relationship. And I mean, how many times do dreams show up in all these different spaces? Yeah. Uh, I, but, but even in the Christian lineage, it's massive, and yeah. people don't c- commune with that in um, in a more collective way. It's really sad that to me because I feel like there's so much power in dreaming, you know, yeah. and I think that's lost, and I think maybe that's been intentionally done, and I really can't help but think that lately. I really think that your dreams. Know, your dreams for better or worse you can't run away from them you meet yourself every night you know in your waking life there's so much that you can avoid or deny or press there's so many ways of avoiding mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or not meeting and I think dreams just change that completely and I think the more the more conscious you become and the more aware you become it becomes if, you know, if everyone did that, our entire societies would be completely different. There's a, a dream, there's a tribe, there's actually lots, there's a dream tribe in the Amazon, um, and and they use the word tribe, and they dream as a group. They dream as a group. They are, will wake up in the morning, and as a group, they will interpret their dreams, and based on the dreams that they've had, they will take action so and I think that that's such a radical thought for a lot of people you know that's just like wow but there's so much insight into that I really feel like there's so much insight into that I agree I I think the well what would you recommend let's 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 start tying a bow on this because if 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 somebody's listening to this and they go, yeah, great, cool, I want to pay attention to my dreams more, what do you what do you recommend they do tonight before they go to bed? I think setting an intention that you will remember your dreams on waking is very helpful. And then also, if you are, um, you know, if you need help or guidance or something, you can ask for that before you fall asleep, and generally your dreams will respond. And I think that's a very helpful way to begin because if you can see some result in your waking life, it, it the motivation intrinsically comes to carry mm-hmm. on, right? So I think that that's the main thing to do that. And in simple practices like journaling, if you can journal your dreams, and it's it's just will be so in, insightful. So journaling is really really helpful. Journal your symbolic dreams, journal as much as you can. And it doesn't have to be a long endeavor, just something, you know, a key point at the beginning, if that's the most that you can do. Um, and as you, you move through time, you'll be able to see what comes up for you in a long-term way. But I think that's very, very helpful symbolic work or symbolic dream work. 
focus on that as a start. So I think it's really, really helpful. And then for anyone interested in lucid dreaming to just kind of do the practices that we were speaking about earlier. And then if they, you know, if anyone's listening to this and they're interested, there, there are lots of lucid dreaming um, practices that you can do to try and become lucid. And so, and they don't take a lot of, you know, they don't take that long. To yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to totally give it away because you got to buy the book, you know, you got to, you got to follow uh, follow the yeah. guidance here. You know, your psych, your psychopomp <laughs> Athena is going to tell you how to how to do this. Everyone's uh, going to have a drink. Oh my god, no! <laughs> I remember uh, when I was uh, reading the audio book, the guy was like, "I have this word psychopomp. It just sounds so pompous." <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's immediately associated. It's it's very lofty. Um, what do you think about dream uh, dictionaries like? Uh, encyclopedias you know people that look the google you know what does my teeth falling out mean or what does a surfboard mean so it's so funny i did an interview like a couple of weeks back and um the interviewer asked me she said you know i googled what for my teeth falling out me means and they said that it was that i was really anxious and insecure and what do you think and you know and so I said to her, I, I gave her what my insight was. And after we had been speaking for a while, I said, I really think it's about nourishment in that context we were talking. And it turned out that she had an eating disorder for a very long time, mm. right? And so when it comes to dream dictionaries, I'm not fully against them, but I wouldn't be, I don't think people should prescribe to their meaning in black and white, right? Mm -hmm. So you open up a dream dictionary and you see apple, apple, tree of knowledge, you know, knowledge, fruit of knowledge. If you're allergic to apples and you dream of an apple, it's going to mean something entirely right. different to you, right? But the the journey that you can go on with your symbols, and I'm sure this is where the Jungian stuff is so rich and I wish I, wish I could not wish, but I think that anyone who's wanting to explore that more should really read up in mm -hmm. that kind of context right so in terms of the dictionaries yes and no you know yes and no. i like i use uh, the book of symbols which i like uh, no, only because at the beginning they're like hey you know we offer yeah. a couple it's not this is that you know it's you know in, in china they believed that the shoe was this and then over yeah. in this but in so just let's kind of just shake something loose to help inspire you what your associations are. Right. And I think that's exactly it, shaking something loose. I often hear from a lot of people um, in practices. I do a lot of work where we do waking like imagery practices. And for a lot of people, the, the, the thing that comes up is that oh, I can't imagine. I'm, I can't see something. I can't, uh, you know, I close my eyes and it's just completely black. And I think that's where books like dream dictionaries or books with symbols mm. are very helpful because they evoke something within us that it wakes the language up again. And so I'm, I'm all for it in that sense. You know, if you're feeling stuck or you just want to be inspired, open the book and see what comes up. Yeah. Like yeah. feet, you know, what, what are your, what, what does that mean? Or what, what have the, uh, the Inuit, what do the Inuits say about, uh, you know, a jacket? Um, well, let's start uh, coming to a close. I, I, I'm curious what threads we still have. What, what, what do we leave out that you really want to include in our um, process today? I don't know. 
Um, I don't think we really left out. I think, yeah, I think we covered a lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. I'm gonna hold on. I took a I took a note here, and I think I want to be sure that I'm I cover. Yeah. I got it. Just are there any other things that you feel people need to know so that they can, for example, just feel inspired maybe by this conversation and start attending to their dreams? Is there anything else that you uh, would recommend, tricks of the trade or afterthoughts? Um, I guess not in, not really tips and things like that, but I would just say to anyone interested in having experiences that go beyond the mundane mm. dreaming is really a wonderful pathway towards that and i feel that yeah i guess that's what i would want to leave people with it's a pathway and it's a pathway that you do individually so really just got to walk it well uh as i said before and when we first started talking i'm I love that you and I were able to connect. Uh, again, you have a great crew that you're working with. And uh, and for anybody, really, go check out Athena's website and um, athenalaz.com. Is that right? I, I got that That's correct? Right. I'll, you'll see a little thing beneath here that says it. And I'll certainly include it in the intro. Um, any other places you'd like to direct people? Um, maybe my website. I think that's amazing. And for social media, if anyone wants to find me there, um, Athena underscore Laz. Yes. And again, look in the show notes and I will have uh, clickable uh, opportunities for you to just link up with uh, Athena's stuff. Get her book. It's a cool book. Anybody who's looking to understand dreams, it's, it, was a, it was an entertaining read and it kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And I, 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 you, you did a good job starting out with very practical approaches for people and then, of course, ended up talking about the soul. You know, so I, I love that stuff. Um, Athena, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a really great chat. Yeah, it's a pleasure.